Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan, filling in for Catherine Shen. When was the last time you were at your doctor's office? Did you feel heard? Did you feel like your healthcare provider had your best interests at heart? Today we are talking about trust between doctors and patients, how it's impacting diagnosis. We hear from Dr. Perry Wilson, Associate Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale, also the author of How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, learning who to trust to get and stay healthy. But joining us now via Zoom from Florida is Shannon Coplis, Board of Director at Dysautonomia International, an all-volunteer organization educating medical professionals about autonomic disorders. She lives with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. She says it took six years to get a diagnosis. Shannon, welcome to where we live. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Also with us on Zoom, Dr. Perry Wilson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Shannon, I'd like to start with you. When did you begin feeling unwell and what did that look like? Oh, thank you. So, um... I became ill a little over 18 years ago. I was a 27-year-old, social, active, single girl. Uh, I was on a corporate fast-track leadership program, uh, and I was, um, I had the world ahead of me. Mm -hmm. I was active, I was traveling, working full-time, and suddenly, nearly overnight, I became uh, so ill that I was unable to sit up in bed without um, fainting. Mm. I would go into non-convulsive seizure states uh, in which I was unresponsive and ended up spending the next six and a half years struggling to find a diagnosis uh, mm. for what many refer to as just anxiety. Mm. So you obviously came up against a wall with the medical community. What happened? That's correct. Um, with every ambulance ride... <laughs> To the local hospital, which, by the way, for decades has been one of the top 10 on USA Today's um, uh, top best hospitals in the U.S., mm. um, I would uh, enter the doors in a gurney with my legs up, which, of course, alleviates a lot of the dysautonomia symptoms, and would be uh, brought into uh, a room and told it was anxiety, given Ativan or Xanax. Mm -hmm. And then sent home only to be uh, rushed back a few days later via ambulance again in an unresponsive state. Uh, And this continued for years and years um, until finally one day when I was admitted to the hospital, Mm -hmm. the nurse 
realized that when I stood up, my heart rate would go from 60 to 180 beats per minute. Oh, wow. And she would rush in. So she informed the um, physician who was uh, just had just finished his residency. He said, I think you have something called POTS, mm. but I'm not familiar with it. I'm going to send you to Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Mm. Let's hear from urologist Dr. Kamal Shimali of Eastern Virginia Medical School and POTS patients featured in this video by Dysautonomia International. The problem with POTS is that it is a syndrome, meaning that it encompasses different symptoms. And people do not only complain of their heart racing, but they can complain of a zillion other things. Shortness of breath, tightness of chest, lightheadedness, fibromyalgia, dizziness, malnutrition, brain fog, stomach problems, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, GI tract shutdown, headaches, random body pain, Sometimes everywhere hurts. Fainting. Heat intolerance. Blood pulling. Irritable bowel syndrome. New onset allergies. Fatigue. Tingling. I think there's about a hundred more. As you see, it's almost every organ of the body that is affected by this constellation of symptoms. POTS is not an isolated syndrome. It is part of a continuum, of a spectrum of conditions that range from very mild to very severe. And the common link is the autonomic nervous system. So for this reason, we put POTS as one of the major manifestations of autonomic dysfunction, or what we also call dysautonomia. Shannon, I, um, I hear you. I also have POTS. It took me more than six years to be diagnosed. It actually came about when a physician friend of mine uh, was home when I was cooking and uh, I bent uh, to the last drawer of the fridge to get something. And when I stood up, I almost passed out. And, and she looked at me and she went, you know, I think what you've been going through all these years is POTS. I think you have POTS. And I joked with her going, yeah, and I have pans too. Um, but then yeah, that's, that started everything for me um, with an electrophysiologist, a cardiologist, uh, confirming it and, and the process. But then there were ER visits. Um, there were all these, um, you know, these barriers uh, up against uh, the system, you know, not being heard and, and not knowing where to go. Um, but tell me, um, in your search for a diagnosis during that time, how did it impact other areas of your life, your career, your finances? I mean, those ER visit copies aren't cheap. Absolutely. You're correct. Um, so at the time I became ill, I was working full time and my manager said to me, please don't come back because we're tired of calling 911 um, on you <laughs> because you continue to have uh, episodes and events here in the office, uh, you become a distraction. Mm. So I, uh, of course, went in, went on uh, short-term disability through my employer. Uh, I can tell you that 18 and a half years later, I have been able to maintain my career. I have continued to to work full time. However, I have been on short-term disability mm. at least a dozen times uh, throughout the past 18 plus years. Uh, due to my POTS, uh, the symptoms and such. Um, currently, I am on 
eight prescription medications, mm. none of which are FDA approved for POTS mm -hmm. because there are no medications approved for POTS Correct. that are FDA approved mm -hmm. currently. Um, in addition, though, I have a home health care nurse who comes to my house mm. anywhere between one and three times per week to start an IV infusion mm. um, to increase my blood volume so that upon standing, I do not faint. Um, I do continue to work full-time remotely. I'm happy to say I'm in corporate finance, mm. um, and my career has continued on the up and up during all of this, but it does definitely put a strain uh, on the career, on your finances, on my family. I am married and have two small children, mm. um, and uh, they fortunately are my, my biggest support team. Well, it's wonderful that here you are today um, and, um, you know, things are going well. I mean, there are bad days or good days, but on the whole, I'm delighted to see how well you're doing. Now, um, tell me how much of the research you did yourself when patients are suffering and unable to find answers. I mean, it took six years um, for your diagnosis. Uh, in the meantime, did you Google? Uh, were they online forums? Did you turn to the non-medical community? Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, when I became ill, this was 2005, and there really was not a lot online. I Googled, uh, Googled my symptoms, which of course will scare anyone uh, with the Google search results that often come up. Um, so there really wasn't anything available, which is the reason why I devote so much of my time towards Dysautonomia International, the organization. Um, because they are providing not only the patients, but also the caregivers and the medical community with so many opportunities to mm -hmm. learn from one another. They're continuously providing new support groups. We have support groups in all 50 states, as well as 60 countries outside of the United States. And the support groups are extremely active. I, I lead the Florida support group, um, which we have dozens of posts throughout the mm -hmm. day. And we have, by the way, more than doubled since COVID due to the prevalence of POTS diagnosis post-COVID. Right. Um, but it's, it is the support groups um, and the resources that the patients today can receive through Dysautonomy International as compared to what I uh, was unfortunately unavailable to achieve or, or secure when I became ill that makes me want to to devote more time and resources to the community. Shannon, um, tell me how you found Dysautonomia International. Great question. So uh, I had, uh, in doing some online research, come across the Dysautonomia International Annual Conference. This was several years back, mm -hmm. uh, being held in Washington, D.C. And uh, walked into the conference and was just amazed by the population of patients, caregivers, um, especially pediatric patients, mm -hmm. um, and um, went and found the, the CEO and asked what I could do to help uh, these patients and caregivers um, find the help mm -hmm. that they needed. Now, briefly, looking back, um, what do you think could have been done differently by the medical community that could have supported you better, um, that perhaps could have led to a, a, a diagnosis uh, much sooner in that journey. So the the biggest thing the medical community can do is 
be more aware of the fact that the forms of dysautonomia and POTS in particular, that S on the end of POTS stands for syndrome. Mm. Therefore, we have, as you well know yourself, we have symptoms throughout our entire body throughout the day, Mm. every day. And it takes a well-trained and um, aware medical professional to put together the puzzle pieces that this patient is suffering from neurological issues, uh, cardiac symptoms, gastrointestinal symptoms, and so forth. So what the medical community really needs to do is be aware of, of assessing the patient outside of maybe just their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. A cardiologist listened to maybe uh, oh, GI symptoms and uh, migraines, for instance. But really, um, in looking back in my instances, the dozens of times that I was in the ER, mm. the POTS could have been easily identified had they just had me stand up. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just a simple heart rate measurement upon standing would have indicated to them there was an issue. Um, but I think today, uh, with the medical community being more interested in learning about dysautonomia, I think uh, my my word of advice is... Um, don't leave the blinders on. Be aware of uh, of all of these symptoms that the patient is, is experiencing. Dr. Wilson, I uh, want to talk to you a bit about patients uh, who don't, you know, when they don't get answers from the medical community, um, either because the doctors don't know yet, and that's a fair thing because, you know, uh, doctors can't know everything. Um, but if they face this wall of it's all in your head or you know, it's it's anxiety like the way Shannon did. Um, and they turn to other places. I mean, right now we see a lot of that happening with social media. And you actually have a free course. I went and saw your course um, on Coursera. It's titled Understanding Medical Research. Your Facebook friend is wrong. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so first of all, um, I just want to say how impressed I am that that both of you uh, have have managed this um, condition, which can be so debilitating, um, so well, and are and are and are thriving as you are. Um, and it's not I'm not surprised to hear this story. It's a story I've heard a lot of times. Um, uh, uh, d- diverse symptoms being attributed to. Um, you know, psychiatric issues. This is particularly a problem for women. There's plenty Mm -hmm. of data that suggests that there is a systematic bias towards women in this form of misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, It very much does happen and and people need to be aware of it. Doctors need to be aware of it as well. Um, It is of course natural that when you're not getting answers, you're not getting the help you need, you will look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Not surprising at all. The problem of course, is that once you're turning elsewhere, once you're looking outside of the, the medical establishment, you've got an overwhelming amount of information. Mm. Some of it is good and, and, and true. You know, like Dysautonomia International is going to provide very reliable information about this syndrome. And then some of it is completely wrong. Mm. And of course, some of it, probably the worst, are people who are deliberately trying to take advantage of others who are desperate. And we see a lot of that as well. Mm. And so it can be really frustrating for patients to try to navigate this. And Mm. that's why it's, you know, part part of my mission is to help patients learn how to figure out, you know, what information is reliable, what information is not, and how to talk to a doctor that you feel might not be hearing exactly what you're saying. And a lot of this uh, is in your book. Um, So could you read a few lines that take us to the heart of your book? 
Uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I have a, a section here. Um, this is sort of from the end, uh, as I'm as I'm summing up what we might need to do to fix all these problems. Mm -hmm. Perhaps if physicians truly internalized that we are labor and not management, we would be more comfortable fighting for better working conditions. That is what time provides. Patients can support these efforts by expressing their concerns to hospital and health system administrators using language administrators understand, such as, if my doctor does not have adequate time to care for me, I will need to seek out another doctor. The first step for doctors to earn your trust back is spending time with you. We need to be allowed to do this. We need to fight for it. But it isn't the last step. Doctors also need to understand that their patients' symptoms are real and important, even when they are not life-threatening. Mm. Tell me how this tension between um, uh, doctors and uh, the management, in your book you call it you know, labor and management as you put it, affects patient health outcomes and importantly, what can patients do about it? It's such a huge problem. I mean, people would, will be, I think, very surprised to hear that 70% of physicians in the United States are employed by corporations or other health systems. So the idea that, you know, physicians are in private practice, hanging out a shingle, are their own boss, the only 30% of physicians fall into that category now. So very much, we are, we are now labor uh, it, it, by any definition, hmm. which means we're not creating our own schedules. We are not um, uh, uh, able to practice in a way that is best for our patient. We have to generate revenue for the corporation, even if it's a nonprofit like the one I work for, we have mm -hmm. to generate revenue for them. And mm -hmm. there are administrators that are trying to ensure that we do that, often by forcing us to see more patients in less time. Um, there are now 10 administrators for every physician in the United States, another huge problem and drain on the healthcare system, which mm -hmm. forces physicians to see even more patients to cover those, those salaries of administrators. Um, and this is really the central problem mm -hmm. of the loss of trust in medicine, because how can you build rapport with a patient when you've got six minutes in the office mm -hmm. to, to see them? Are hospital consolidations in Connecticut and around the country further eroding this trust? I mean, we see physician practices bought out one after the other by Hartford Healthcare and Yale. I mean, there, the consolidation has I, is 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 kind of double edged. It it might have some benefit in that you may need less administrators to you know negotiate on the behalf of a large large practices with uh, with insurance companies as mm. opposed to you know multiple individual practices. But in the end, you know whether it's Hartford, Yale, uh, who's my employer, or you know private equity companies which are buying uh, mm -hmm. buying practices. Mm -hmm. Um, these are people who fundamentally have a responsibility. Their job is to ensure that revenue continues to flow. And I'm not saying that nobody needs money, you know, that we need to keep the lights on, we need mm -hmm. to buy equipment and stuff All like right. that. But if that's the entire job, the focus gets shifted from necessarily on what is best for the patient and the doctor, by the way, we mm. all want to spend more time with our patients mm. to this bigger picture. And um, and we need to be willing to come together, doctors and patients, to push against this because we are on the same side here uh, and people might not realize that. And some of the data you cite in your book is striking. One is a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Trust in physicians is lower in the United States than in 23 other economically developed countries. And yet we have among the highest per capita healthcare spending uh, compared to other developed economies. 
Yeah, it's startling, isn't it? Um, you know, we spend about twice as much as our as our closest competitor. We have worse outcomes in terms of basically every you know major metric of healthcare, whether you're talking about infant or maternal mortality or mm-hmm. life expectancy. So it's not like the money is getting us something. And the reason we spend so much on healthcare is because we have an incredibly fragmented system. There are a ton of middlemen. Um, everyone is, is, you know, taking siphoning off, uh, creating a, a ton of inefficiencies. Hmm. And as part and parcel of this, um, when people are looking for ways to maximize profit or maximize revenue, an easy way to do it is to treat physicians like, you know, assembly line workers mm-hmm. and turn up the speed on the conveyor belt. And that's what burns out physicians. That's why you have physicians leaving practices at record rates. And of course, it's what frustrates parent patients and pushes them to, you know, alternative therapies, which in some cases may be worse for them. Right. So that brings us back to um, the advocacy, uh, you know, organized, credible advocacy. And with Dysautonomia International, both doctors and patients work together to advance uh, research and treatment. So tell me how this is happening, Shannon, and uh, where do you go next with this? What's the next um, uh, step? Absolutely. So Dysautonomia International we do fund multiple research studies every year throughout the globe, actually, not just the United States and Canada. We do uh, studies in, in Europe and Australia, uh, South America. We are um, continually working with our medical advisory board members, which are made up from uh, organizations, some of the leading research organizations around the world. Um, we are con- constantly encouraging our patients to get involved in research studies that are um, that are available to them um, that they can can travel to, mm. um, we are always um, uh, looking to educate the medical community through uh, CME courses that are available throughout the United States mm. as well as outside of the country, um, and then we also, uh, of course are leading efforts and have been for several years now on Capitol Hill, meeting with Senate and House members um, and uh, lobbying for more research funding through the NIH. Um, So I joined my fellow board of directors earlier this year. We spent four days on Capitol Hill and at the NIH, uh, met with 35 senators and Mm. congressmen individually, um, pleading our case Mm. that there is definitely not enough research um, research dollars being um, given towards POTS research in particular. Uh, in fact, uh, it's our current population, NIH is spending roughly 20 cents per year per patient on POTS research, which is completely unacceptable. Thank so you. Um, we, we are pushing very hard for an increase in funding for research through the NIH. Thank you, Shannon, for your time today and be well. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Sajata Shinivasan. Thanks to Shannon Copeless, Board of Director and Treasurer for Autonomia International. Uh, Dr. Perry Wilson, Associate Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale, also author of How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, is going to stay with us. Tell us what your experience at a doctor's office has been like. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan filling in for Catherine Shen. As we just heard, many patients are understandably frustrated at the doctor's office. Getting a diagnosis or even an appointment has become a challenge. But doctors trying to provide the best care they can are frustrated too. Dr. Perry Wilson, Associate Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale, is also author of How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, Learning Who to Trust to Get and Stay Healthy. Perry, in your book, you talk about how trust is eroded um, due to many factors, one of which is doctors prescribing medications that patients can't afford, high copays or out of the insurance formulary. What is the solution here? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a huge problem, but fortunately, it, there's a pretty simple solution. Um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is responsible for the high cost of drugs. Um, they are, in, by and large, incredibly profitable, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there is broad bipartisan support on the side of voters to allow things like negotiation of drug prices with uh, Medicare, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how capitalism is supposed to work, right? You're mm-hmm. supposed to, uh, if you have multiple drugs uh, that can treat the same condition, um, we should be able to negotiate for lower prices and and, and see what the market will bear. Mm-hmm. Um, that is happening now in a very limited um, sort of almost pilot program right. from the Biden administration, but not nearly on the scale that is necessary. The Inflation the Adjustment re- Act for Medicare you're talking about. Uh, the Correct, um, which right. is going to allow Medicare to negotiate the price of, of a, a small handful of drugs, right. you know, 10 expensive drugs or so. Right. Um, The reason this is, I just want to call this out, is that the pharmaceutical industry spends more on lobbying than any other industry in the United States. Um, It's it's more than $300 million a year of lobbying. It spends more on lobbying than oil and gas, which I often think, you know, before I looked up this data, I thought, oh, yeah, those big oil companies, you know, need their leases. No, not even close. Pharma Mm -hmm. is way more. And two thirds of our Congress people, both on the Republican and the Democrat side, Democratic side, receive uh, uh, lobbying money from the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. So there's a very obvious reason why there's a disconnect from what the public wants and what Congress is willing to do. And it's high time we call them out on it. Right. And the trickle down effect happens at the doctor's office between the doctor and the patient. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, we certainly can't control, uh, we're, we're, you know, it's way above our pay grade to control the price <laughs> of the medications we prescribe. But more disturbingly, a lot of doctors have no idea what the price their patient will pay is going to be. Again, because 
yeah, we can Google the list price of a drug, but depending on the insurance company and the co-pays and you know, how much they've put into their deductible already, it's, it's almost impossible to tell until the patient gets to the pharmacy and gets a bill um, what they're going to be charged. Right. You also talk about the Sunshine Act, how patients should ask their doctor to suggest an alternate drug if publicly available data shows that the physician received money from the pharma company making that drug. Tell me more. Yeah, most people don't know this, but um, if you Google the Sunshine Act, um, uh, that's its, its colloquial name, uh, but um, what you'll find is a website that allows you to search any doctor in the United States, and mm-hmm. you can see how much they've received um, from pharmaceutical companies in all forms. You know, even if it's a if it's a lunch, you mm-hmm. know, if the lunch costs $25, you'll see $25 mm-hmm. there. Um, it's worth looking up your doctors. Most doctors, you'll actually, patients will be pleasantly surprised that they get actually nothing from pharmaceutical companies. They might find, oh, that's good. Um, But it's worth knowing, especially if you have a good relationship with your doctor, so that you can know, you know, that there are oftentimes alternatives out there. And it may not be that the doctor is doing, prescribing a specific drug because they're getting lunches. It may be that they like that drug the best. (laughs) And the pharmaceutical company has metrics to know that, oh, that's a doctor that likes our drug. Nevertheless, it's good for patients to know that so there can be clear communication. There are some delightful patient stories in your book, and there's one about Miss Mayer. Briefly, what's her story and how has it helped shape your patient interactions since then? Yeah, this was... um, a really sort of interesting story happened early in my career where a woman had come to me after seeing five, six other doctors for a host of, of symptoms, um, mm. uh, fatigue, muscle aches, uh, you know, uh, lack of energy, joint problems, mm. and had just had every test in the book, every scan, um, every blood test, mm. and everything was coming up negative. Um I had a, a talk with her and, and you know, it was our first visit. And I'm sort of embarrassed at this point to say that I, I, I you know, got a sense from her that there were you know, some, some issues here that could be associated with what is major depression disorder, mm. which can be, you know, again, this is a, it, it, it is a bias of doctors to ascribe symptoms to psychiatric problems, but that doesn't mean that psychiatric problems don't exist. Absolutely. Um, nevertheless. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The um, it's important too, you know, for the for for a doctor to flag um, uh, I, I, to flag a problem um, if uh, that's uh, the clinical uh, uh, exactly. diagnosis. Yeah, Ex- exactly. But my mistake was that we hadn't built that trust yet. It was our first visit. Mm. You know, I didn't need to bring this up in our first visit. I I didn't have that rapport. And as soon as I brought mm. it up. I saw her shut down. It was just, she was, she was gone. And I set up a follow-up for her that she never showed up to. The the coda to the story though, is that I did see her again. Um, I saw her when I was in the emergency room uh, and uh, uh, she had come in after suffering a seizure. Um, and what had happened was she was on a water cleanse uh, and, and, mm. and it's possible to drink enough water. You have to drink quite a lot if your kidneys work, but yeah, it's possible to drink enough water to give yourself a seizure. And that is what happened. Um, when I talked to her again, I found out that over the past year, she'd you know abandoned conventional medicine. Mm. She had found a group that um, on online that had convinced her that she had heavy metal toxicity and she was taking all t- types of therapies for, mm. for heavy metal toxicity. She had actually had tests done, which did not show heavy metal toxicity. Nevertheless, she was invested in this. And what 
And she told me mm. that she felt better than she'd ever felt in her life. Mm. So I saw this person. I was like, okay, you know, the data is suggesting you're not correct here. Nevertheless, and you had this horrible outcome, right? You had a seizure, you're in the emergency room, but she feels better. She's getting something that I didn't give her. And that might not be the correct diagnosis. In this case, I don't think it was. But what she had was community. What she had was people listening to her and validating her experiences. And that is really powerful too. And it's something doctors don't think about enough. Absolutely. And I think because she didn't uh, like the answer you gave her, she went to someone else whose answer was more palatable. And, um, and look, uh, and that can be dangerous. Um, and it certainly was. I mean, you, you know, she could have died. Right. Um, so this isn't a happy story by any means, but it was educational for me because uh, it reminded me that, you know, we have a shot, but we often have a shot with patients. Mm. Um, but if we don't handle it appropriately, if we don't build that bond with them first, mm. um, then, you know, in some ways, the harm that she suffered was was due to me. You know, I mean, you you might not blame me as much as I blame myself or something like that. but. Um, but I do see a connection there, and um, and it did change the way I practice. Right. Now, um, what should patients ask their doctors when advocating for themselves? So I have a very easy one, um, and it's this question. What else could this be? Mm. Um, I think it's the most important question in medicine. Doctors are busy, and they're humans, and mm. we see a lot of conditions, and most of them are common because just by definition, we see pneumonia, mm. we see heart attacks, we see emphysema, we see the flu, we see COVID. We'll recognize that. Mm. Um, but because of that, we tend to say, okay, well, you know, if you cough and you've got a fever and you've got something on your chest x-ray, it's probably pneumonia and here's the antibiotics for pneumonia. And we're mm. usually right. But that one question, what else can this be, mm. just forces us who are human to say, uh, okay, well, I suppose, you know, and 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 to broaden that differential diagnosis a bit. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not pneumonia. And in fact, I think it's the best thing to do is to, to treat as if it's a common condition first. But because you've gone through the exercise, when you come back, and if you're not getting better, you've got that that in your back pocket to say, yeah, I'm not feeling better despite the antibiotics. Remember how you said it could also be, you know, X? Maybe now's the time to think about that. And it just changes the tenor of the conversation in a very non-adversarial way. Absolutely, Perry. And again, we go back to uh, the lack of time being at the heart of this problem, because to have that discussion, what else can it be? Your physician's in and out the door in a couple of minutes. So um, we have a, a comment from our uh, one of our listeners, Kate from Cheshire. And Kate says she has a very uh, medically complex problem. She works as a, a social worker. And uh, she says she turns to the Columbia University's narrative medicine uh, program um, to look up uh, for, um, you know, about symptoms and conditions. And she says what's missing in healthcare is doctors having the time to listen to patient narratives, understand their meaning of lived experience, being rushed, being pressured by insurance, specialists not collaborating with internists, things that get in the way of the larger patient story. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is, and, and, and it's not just me. If you talk to any doctor, if you talk to your doctor, they will complain about how many patients they are being forced to see in a given day. And again, being forced, I, I'm using that term because most doctors are employees now. They are, they are labor, they work for 
some 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 other company um and uh that is probably the number one thing that needs to be sort of reformed about how we handle healthcare in this country and there's various ways to do that it's not all insurance reform and pharmaceutical reform although that's part of it it's probably also payment reform because we pay a lot more for things like procedures you know surgeries colonoscopies mm -hmm. cardiac catheterizations um, than we do for office visits, even if they might take the same time. And of course, these are, yes, it takes a lot of skill to do those, those procedures. And I, I, th there is a difference there, but there is some value potentially to rebalancing that to allow people to spend a little more time with their patients. I can see how part of the frustration for a physician might come from the fact that so many of these variables are out of one's control. However, what's within one's control is the capacity to listen, to humanize a person's life and to look at a patient as a person. And I, I felt deeply when I read about the story of Mrs. Ambrose in your book and the promise of a hot dog. Briefly, tell our listeners, please. Oh, I, I love this woman. This was not a patient technically of mine. She, I, I was in the mm. hospital seeing her brother. Mm. Um, it's an older woman and uh, she lived a uh, lived with her brother all her life never married no kids and and her brother was dying and um she was there at the bedside and i was talking to her and a priest had just come in and and given her some some platitudes about you know what was happening with her brother and 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 she looked at me and i know i can't swear on npr but she said, she said she said it's always the same s word with them um, which I kind of thought was hilarious. And we commiserated on, um, you know, being bad Catholics uh, together. And we just struck up a com you know, she wasn't my patient. We just talked. And um, eventually uh, she left and, and by some sort of, I don't know, just kismet. Six months later, I'm attending on the wards and she's my patient now. Mm -hmm. She was admitted with not that sick, fortunately. Um, but needed to go to a rehab facility after the admission. Mm. And we continued that friendship. And all she ever wanted um, was a, a really good hot dog, which I couldn't find for her in the hospital. But I was able, once she got discharged to the rehab facility, to stop at Blackie's um, in Connecticut. And many of you, you know, from Cheshire and uh, 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 will know Blackie's um, and bring some good hot dogs to her. So those are the moments in medicine that, you know, make it worthwhile for me. And the fact that doctors are getting less and less of those moments mm. is an explanation for why, you know, fewer of them are staying in medicine and why, you know, uh, fewer are, joint are coming into medicine nowadays. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Sujata Shinivasan. Dr. Perry Wilson of Yale will stay with us and we want to hear from you. Do you feel hurt when you go to the doctor? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677 or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan. Today we are talking about our doctors and the conversations we have in the doctor's office. How much access do you have to your doctor? Do you wish you could call your doctor with a question and get them on the phone pretty much right away? Joining us on Zoom to talk about a different model of care is Dr. Vasant Kainkaryam. 
He is a direct primary care physician in Connecticut. Vasant, happy to have you on Where We Live. Thanks, Sujata. Happy to be here. Staying with us, Dr. Perry Wilson of Yale, author of How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't. People say they are stuck with long wait times to get an appointment with their regular physician. Longer for specialists. Here's one patient, Amy Lundberg, I interviewed recently. She works in a school in Bolton. It was months out before I could get an appointment. Then they called again. They're like, oh, we can't see you because you haven't been here in over three years. So now I need to find a new doctor. I can't have kids because of stage four endometriosis, which I never knew if I had gone sooner. I may not have been, you know, where I'm at now. Vasant, could you share with our listeners what the doctor-patient relationship in the direct primary care model looks like compared to traditional primary care? Are they seen sooner? Yeah, you know, so the, the really neat part about the direct primary care model is that it takes out a lot of the people that are in between, right? Like Dr. Wilson had mentioned. And it's a, a monthly membership-based model where patients pay a low monthly membership fee in our practice, 50 to 100 bucks a month. And that gives them direct access with texting, emails, phone calls. And so it allows us to give patients a lot quicker access and a lot easier access. So it definitely really helps with the access problem in many ways. Uh, What's the payment structure here? Uh, Is it all self-pay or what about uh, patients with insurance? You know, great question. So, you know, one of the biggest differences between concierge medicine and what we do is that in concierge medicine, the retainer fees are pretty high, anywhere from five to 10 grand a year, and they mm-hmm. often bill insurance as well. In the direct primary care model, it's like I tell people, think of the old school doc from 70 years ago in an Amazon Prime subscription. So they may have insurance, they may not have insurance, they may have Medicare or Medicaid, or live paycheck to paycheck, but everyone just pays that low monthly membership. And so when they come in, there's no co-pays, it doesn't trigger a deductible. So it makes healthcare a lot more affordable and a lot easier. What about when a patient needs to see a specialist or what happens during a medical emergency? Yeah, and so those are cases, right? So this is direct primary care. And so it's very, you know, we explain to our patients that this does not cover catastrophic catastrophic events. It does not cover major medical expenses. And, and patients typically, you know, some patients say, you know what, doc, I can't afford anything else. Other patients keep some type of health insurance, whether it's just, you know, really high deductible. And then some patients go for medical cost sharing or health shares, um, which are health insurance alternatives that seem to be gaining a lot more popularity. But Vasant, since you're independent, uh, you do have uh, the ability to refer patients to any of the larger hospital systems uh, to see specialists. I understand. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm on medical staff at the large health systems here, outpatient medical staff. So I have direct access to specialists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes if I need a patient to see a specialist, I bypass the entire system and I go doc to doc and I reach mm-hmm. out to the other doctor directly. And it's oftentimes their office is calling my patient to schedule the mm-hmm. appointment. So, it you know, part of, you know, as Dr. Wilson said, the doctor has to understand how the system works to be able to use the system to advocate for their patient. Talking about advocacy for patients, uh, uh, we have a comment from Rick from Bethany. Shout out to retired doctor of mine, Dr. Stephen Blander. I don't know where you are, but you were the best doctor I ever had. Now, um, you, uh, uh, I understand you specialize in preventive medicine, Vasant, and I assume that's the goal of every primary care physician. But what does this look like in your practice? Yeah, you know, I tell people that the traditional primary care model is where the doctor is in a building surrounded by a whole bunch of subspecialists in acute care. You know, our vision here at Four Elements is to basically be surrounded by wellness professionals. So we have 
you know, so I'm triple board certified internal medicine, pediatrics and obesity medicine, mm. but we have an entire, we have massage therapy, chiropractic, clinical mm. hypnosis for behavior change. Mm. We, we, we do so much here that really focuses on how do we keep you out of the hospital and out of the acute care system by giving you access to these resources that focus on, you know, if you look at the data, right, the, the largest determinant of health is individual behavior. And if a doctor doesn't have the time or doesn't give your patients the resources to change that individual behavior, how do you expect them to get healthy? How much time do you roughly spend with each of your patients? You know, so before a patient even commits to the practice, we have an hour intake. So it's an hour meet and greet. So it's like a speed date with your doctor where I tell them, if I don't get to know you as an individual, I cannot give you individualized care. Mm. So we do an hour intake and our physicals are typically an hour and a half and our follow-ups are at least 30 minutes. But because I control my schedule, I can choose how much time my patient needs based Mm. on what's going on. What's your job satisfaction like? We see uh, this this crisis in primary care, more physicians retiring and not enough medical students wanting to actually come into primary care. Do you say that you have a strong relationship with your patients, less hassle with the system? Um, Are you excited to wake up and go to work? You know, I will tell you, I'm starting. So I was a C-suite executive in a very large healthcare system um, a few years ago. And then I quit my job in 2019 and went to a salary of zero to basically create this practice. And so, you know, I will tell you, I I might be physically tired because it's a lot of work being an Mm -hmm. entrepreneur and a doctor, but I find meaning in everything that I do every day. And I think, you know, we have a lot of students who rotate through here because part of our job is to tell people, look, physicians, you don't have to succumb to the burnout, you know, mm-hmm. make your choices. They're out there and it takes some sacrifice, but you can do it. Uh, Perry, we just have a few moments here. What do you think of this model? I think it's, you know, I think it's fascinating. Um, and I think we need to be experimenting with new models to deliver care because obviously the predominant model is not working um, broadly for patients or doctors. So I'm really encouraged to see people trying this. Um, and I, I I hope that um, it's just accessible to as many people as possible. Do you think this model possibly will attract more medical students to the field of primary care? Oh, I would love it if it, if it could. <laughs> um, where, you know, I, I think in the end, um, this is going to sound a bit cynical, but the way I've seen following med, med students for you know 20 years since I've been one is um, that a lot of decisions end up being focused around those reimbursements. Um, mm-hmm. And as reimbursements have shifted, medical students going into various specialties have shifted with them, not for all medical students, but there, there that does seem to be a potential motivating factor. And of course, the $400,000 mm-hmm. of medical school debt they all accrue <laughs> doesn't help matters. Thank you, Vasant and Perry, for your time today. I'm Sajata Shinivasan. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Uh, our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely day and be well. <laughs>